Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. In our interviews with David Bakavoy, we talked about the historical Jesus. We talked about Bart Ehrman and some of the studies and research and books published that essentially tear down the divine Christ. In our interview with Brother Bakavoy, we talk at length about these criticisms, with David offering a middle way, a way to see some of the criticisms that are out there and still yet see the divine Christ. I also wanted to make sure that we offered a wide array and a spectrum of, of beliefs on this issue so that a member of the church could take in all the information and recognize that combining scholars like David Bakavoy and N.T. Wright, who a four-part series will follow here, that there are plenty of ways to reconcile scholars like the view of Bart Ehrman and others who tear down the divine Jesus and see that there is plenty of room for Christ to still be the Son of God and the Savior and Redeemer of the world. So now on to our four-part series of N.T. Wright, where he discusses the historical Jesus. It's good to be back with you this morning, and uh, thank you very much, those of you who have written out questions. It's actually much easier to deal with them that way, partly because if you can articulate them onto one single sheet of paper, it's probably quicker and easier than if you come to a microphone and, and, and speak it, and it enables me to bring them into some sort of order. And what I'm going to do is just to take two or three minutes now to address some that arise directly out of yesterday's presentations, and then to hold the other ones over because they will be dealt with en route, as it were, in the two presentations this morning. There are several people have raised questions about the method that I use and the historical groundwork for what I'm doing and questions about, at that level about where the whole debate about Jesus has been coming from and going to. Um, somebody who has studied with Luke Timothy Johnson, who now teaches in Emory, asks me for a more specific comment about his view, which is that the quest for Jesus done by post-enlightenment historiography is really a barren thing and that what we should do is to trust that the church which has always worshipped the living Jesus will give us the truth about this living Jesus. And I suppose part of the answer to that is that it's precisely at that point that there is a huge credibility gap in today's world and simply saying take it on trust from the church manifestly has not worked for thousands and perhaps millions of people who feel that the church have let them down and have not actually told them the truth. So that's just a way of keeping the question out of harm's way, as it were. And in particular, it's my view that the church 
um, demonstrably has often belittled Jesus and cut Jesus down to size and that the church itself needs to be confronted, not with any and every crazy theory that comes up from historians' work, but from, but, but from genuine, serious, sober historical inquiry. And that's uh, an ongoing debate that Luke Johnson and I have been having for some time, along with plenty of others. You'll see more about that in my book, The Challenge of Jesus, Chapter 1. Two quick questions here. Uh, Actually, the handwriting looks very similar. I wonder if it's the same person. Please, could I share any thoughts on why America embraced the Jesus Seminar? Um, I'm not sure I ought to do that, actually. Um, (laughs) Comment on somebody else's cultural folly. It seems to me a very strange thing to do. And then the other question, which looks at the same handwriting, would I comment on John Spong's work? Well, I can't really comment very much on that. I've only read a couple of Jack Spong's books, and one of them I dealt with in detail in my book, Who Was Jesus?, ten years ago. That was his book, Born of a Woman. And uh, I have not, I confess had a high regard for Spong as a scholar with whom I should do serious business. It seems to me he flails around rather in his theories and though he does refer to quite a lot of works of scholarship, I haven't found him among the conversation partners that I felt that I needed to take seriously. So I'm afraid I don't think it would be appropriate for me to to comment further about about him, Um, though I realize that he has, of course, had a huge influence on this side of the Atlantic, at least. But if I was to deal with what he's done and said, I I really oughtn't to do it in a one-liner. I ought really to uh, take a week and read the stuff and come back and say something about it, and I haven't done that. Um, Questions about the fact that the Gospels were written decades after Jesus' death, so they couldn't accurately describe the events and uh, quotations and so on, um, is, that, is that in fact the case? And were they composed to deal with the church situations contemporary to the time they were written? The questioner is careful to say that that's the theory that he wants me to comment on, or she, not uh, their own point of view. Uh, yes, the Gospels were written sometime after Jesus' time. We don't actually know when. Uh, Historian scholars have produced nice convenient dates, often putting Mark in the late 60s, Matthew and Luke in the 70s or 80s, or even 90s and John in the 90s or around 100. And you see scholars coming up with these dates as though they were agreed facts. They're not agreed facts. We don't actually have solid dates for any of the Gospels. It could be the case that they were all written by 60 AD. It could be the case that they were none of them written till 95 AD. I don't think they were all as early as 60. I don't think they were all as late as 95, but there is simply no solid evidence to put them one way or the other. Of course they are addressing their own situation. But as I shall be trying to show in the first of this morning's presentations, one of the fascinating things about the material in the Gospels is that there are all sorts of things which show clear, I believe and have argued, show clear evidence that these were not made up to reflect a later situation, because we know quite a lot about the later situations, and there are things in the Gospels which simply don't belong there, but which do belong with Jesus. I can't begin to show you all the detail of that in a quick answer to a quick question, but um, in particularly my big book, Jesus and the Victory of God, I I have addressed that question in almost every chapter and section. 
Is there anything then about Jesus' historical reality that all scholars agree has been conclusively established? Well, I can't speak for all scholars, but uh, virtually all scholars that I've ever heard of, you always find the odd maverick, agree that Jesus of Nazareth really existed, that he was born around the time when Herod the Great died, and that he was executed under Roman rule, etc., etc. There are some obvious parameters like that. We can go a bit further and say that virtually everybody agrees that he did indeed announce the kingdom of God, though not everybody at all agrees on what he meant by that. Virtually everybody agrees that he did remarkable healings, though you still find, of course, a significant minority who don't, and, uh, and so on. But from there, of course, opinions diverge, because what you say about Jesus is inescapably self-involving. You can't just do this stuff objectively or neutrally. And there are some things which you can hammer out and more or less gain agreement on, but when you go beyond there, the historian's worldview becomes quite tangled up with the investigation. And that is inevitable. That happens to all of us all the time. Could go further, but won't. Uh, what about Jesus' miraculous signs? Why did he so frequently tell people that he healed not to tell anyone? Well, that's early on in the ministry when there's a real need for secrecy because if Jesus had been revealed as a possible messianic pretender or something early on, he wouldn't have got as far as Jerusalem. The authorities would have come and picked him up. And there's a need for secrecy because his message is so explosive that he has to explain things privately to the disciples and doesn't want things to be known too widely. But the closer we get towards the denouement, when Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, the less secrecy there is. When he heals Bartimaeus outside Jericho, he doesn't say to him, don't tell anybody. Bartimaeus, everybody sees what's happened, and Jesus allows him to follow him on to Jerusalem. So it looks as though that's something which belongs earlier in the ministry rather than later. Uh, if he performed uh, where are we? No, why have the miraculous signs which he said his followers would perform largely disappeared with the first generation of Christians? Well, I don't think they have, um, but that's a very controversial topic which would take a whole other lecture to get to. I simply want to record my view that when in John's Gospel Jesus is recorded as saying, uh, greater things will you do because I go to the Father. I'm not quite sure what he had in mind, but I am quite sure that he didn't mean lesser things than these will you do because I go to the Father. Um, the church has not really come to terms with that, it seems to me. There are two or three questions here about what then about the Jews, why didn't the Jews at the time and subsequently believe in Jesus, how do we put that whole package together? That is a huge question which I have addressed in a couple of places in particular, um, and this relates to the recent um, thing from the Catholic bishops in America about that it's inappropriate for Christians to evangelize Jews. In my commentary on Romans, which is in the New Interpreter's Bible, Volume 10, inevitably when dealing with Romans 9 to 11 in particular, I have addressed this issue uh, not at great length, but quite carefully, and I hope reasonably sensitively. And also there's a chapter in my book, For All God's Worth, For All God's Worth. It's a paperback, basically a collection of sermons. The chapter in there called The Older Brother, which is an attempt to address precisely this issue. Um, the only way of addressing it is carefully, patiently, and slowly. And uh, I don't have the time to do that right now. I hope I do have the patience on other occasions, but it's a very difficult and a very important one, and I would rather simply refer you to that. If you want me to talk about it in public, please ask in the later question session we're going to have this morning. Um, uh, 
a final question here about if, because of the resurrection, Christians have a different level of empowerment, why does the book of Hebrews present Old Testament believers as examples for Christians to follow? They are examples of a faith which is turning into hope. In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham and Moses and so on are examples of people who believed God and allowed it to generate hope. And to that extent, they are precisely examples for us to follow who believe in Jesus and are to allow that to generate hope. Again, I could say more, but time is constrained. If you want to ask a question for me to address later on, it'll be much easier if you could scribble it down like these good people have done and the others that I'm going to try to get to later, and I will try and address them like this. And actually, it's a much quicker and more efficient way, I think, of dealing with it, but we will have a Q&A, we are assured, at the end of the session today. So we come to this morning's main presentation, first one on Jesus, Israel, and the cross. The problem and the challenge of this question is that many accounts of Jesus, both scholarly and popular, and I suspect that many ordinary Christians in churches' perception, is to have a big split between what Jesus did in his public career, his healings, his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, all of that stuff, and his death, on the other hand. What was the connection between the two? For many Christians, including many great traditions, both within Catholicism and Protestantism, it seems as though on the one hand, Jesus had to go around living a morally exemplary life and giving lots of wonderful teaching about this and that, and then as a totally separate event, that he had to die for the sins of the world. How do you put that together? Because in the Gospels, it's a seamless whole. Those two themes are woven together and you can't get a razor blade between them. So why have we allowed them to fall apart? This is partly because we have in our various cultures, not least in the Western world, allowed certain large areas of life and human experience to fall apart, not to relate to one another. And I've mentioned before, and some of you have heard me talk about this, uh, the whole question of history and faith, of politics and religion, of public life and private belief. These have been held at arm's length. I once taught a grade six Sunday school class in the church that my wife and I attended in uh, the little village of Hudson outside Montreal when we lived there. And I once at the beginning of a session asked my class of 12 and 13 year olds, why did Jesus die? And I made them write down their answers so that they could then give them with no conferring around the room. And about half of them gave me historical or even political reasons. Jesus died because the Pharisees didn't like what he was doing. Jesus died because the Romans were worried about what he was up to and so on. And the other half gave me an answer to the question, why did Jesus die? Theological or spiritual or personal reasons. He died because he loved us. He died because God wanted to forgive our sins. He died so that we could go to heaven, whatever it might be. Two, it seems, quite different types of answer. Isn't it interesting, again, that in the Gospels, those two are woven tightly together. They are combined. They belong with one another. The political answer and the religious answer seem to us to be at opposite ends of the spectrum. That's our problem. Not a problem for the Gospels. That's not the way they see it. In fact, if you look at the Gospel stories, you find in each of them, in their own individual ways, I'll just mention two, Luke and John, but we could do the same with Mark and Matthew as well, 
the way they tell the story of Jesus' death is primarily as a political or historical event about somebody caught in the crossfire, so to speak, between different power games that were going on at the time and somebody who appeared to walk right into that situation knowing what he was doing. That's the first meaning that strikes us. For instance, in Luke's account, quite clear what Jesus does in the temple leads to his arrest and trial, leads to the charge before Pilate, which is a political charge. We found this fellow disturbing the people and forbidding to give tribute and so on. But all along, Luke is simultaneously telling us that this has happened to fulfill the scriptures, and in particular, that this is the way to the new exodus, the exodus which Jesus is going to accomplish at Jerusalem, the true Passover happening at last, not as a separate event from those political events. The first Passover was, of course, a major political event, the overthrow of the Egyptian armies in the Red Sea and the liberation of Israel. If that wasn't political, I don't know what is, but it's deeply theological. Luke is saying, within that historical and political event, you find the theological meaning. And then Luke tells us again and again and again that within the theological meaning of the new exodus, you find the personal meaning. Jesus dies and Barabbas goes free. Jesus dies and assures the thief beside him that today he'll be with him in paradise and so on. You find the personal within the theological and you find the theological within the historical. If we could learn nothing more than that today, are we losing power? If we could learn nothing more than that today, we would have done ourselves a great service. John, likewise, John sees Jesus as a marked man ever since the temple action which he does in chapter 2 at the beginning of the gospel. But particularly after, John, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, look here, things are getting dangerous and difficult. If he goes on like this, the Romans will come and destroy our nation and our temple. We're going to be in deep political trouble. And he says, tell you what we're going to do. It's expedient that one person should die and that the nation should be saved. And that's a totally political statement. And John says he was high priest and despite himself, despite the fact that he was a wily, scheming, real politique sort of person, despite that, God allowed him to speak a word of truth that Jesus would die to save people in a way that Caiaphas never imagined. And then when the chief priests go to Pilate, they use political arguments. They say, if you let him go, it means you're not Caesar's friend. And when Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? They say, we have no king but Caesar. While Pilate himself, faced with Jesus talking about truth, says, what is truth? Classic postmodern position invented by Pontius Pilate. <laughs> because, serious point, the deconstruction of truth always serves to reinscribe the empire think about it. What is truth? We don't know, so we're just going to go ahead and do what empires always do. So Pilate and the Jewish leaders are scheming, but John says, hidden inside that event, not superimposed from outside or juxtaposed over on the side, hidden inside that is the truth that Jesus is the good shepherd who will give his life for the sheep. Within the politics, you get the theology, and within the theology, boy, do you get the personal. Think of Peter, 
Think of Peter in John 13 saying, Lord, where are you going? I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, are you going to lay down your life for me, Peter? Actually, you're going to deny me. And he does. And then in John 21, as you know, Jesus comes and addresses Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's a deeply personal message within the theological truth, which is found within the machinations of history and politics. Because, you see, the cross already had a powerful symbolic meaning in the world of the first century before ever any Christian theologians started to give it their meaning. The cross as a symbol said, we Romans run this world and if you get in our way, this is what will happen to you. The Romans didn't, of course, invent crucifixion, but they made it a specific tool of their particular way of doing empire. It was the death of the slave, the runaway or rebel slave, and they made it the death of the rebel, the political rebel. It was shameful, it was horrible. The early Christian understanding did not replace that symbolic meaning. It found God within it said, if you want to know who God is, you'll find him on the rubbish heap outside the gate, where the shame happens, where the violence happens. The early Christian meaning of the cross is not found by ignoring its political and historical meaning, but by going inside it and finding God there. And the question then presses upon us as we approach this complex mystery. It's a question that was already in the questions raised from yesterday. Is this simply an idea that was dreamt up in the 40s and 50s and 60s by Paul or by the gospel writers or whoever? Is it simply a Christian construct which they have put upon Jesus in his own time? And it comes up again and again in the works of the Jesus Seminar and the work of Marcus Borg and so on. They say Jesus could not possibly have thought any of that stuff. He was just talking about God and talking about God's kingdom and it all went horribly wrong. And they sometimes then say, and I know Marcus Borg would say, that the Christian statement that he loved me and gave himself for me may be theologically true for me, even though it wasn't in fact historically true of Jesus. I find it impossible to hold those two apart like that, but many people do. And then the response that a lot of ordinary devout Christians in the pews will say when you get into this kind of historically complicated thing, look here. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's quite enough for me. I don't need to go into all that historical stuff. Well, I want to tell you, no, you're right, you don't need to, just for you. You don't need to in order to be saved. You don't need to if you're in extremis and you just need to reach out and grasp the love of God in Jesus Christ. You don't need at your hospital bedside 15 books of historical and systematic theology to check up on. But if you want a faith that will get you from A to B, if you want a faith that will help you to mature and grow and live for Christ in the world, and particularly if you have any responsibility whatever for helping other people to come to faith and struggle with doubt and questions and so on, 
You will need to wrestle with these questions. You see, it's all very well. If I go to another country and somebody says, you need to get from here to there, I will lend you this car. You've not driven this kind of car before, but it's perfectly all right. Pedals, steering wheel, brake, get on with it. That's all you need to know. I will drive it from where I am to where I want to be. But if something goes wrong with the car, I'm totally stuck because I don't know how to fix this car. And unless I know how to read the map, I may get lost. So it's all very well saying, I just need to say Jesus loves me and died for me and that will enable me to drive my car of faith from here to there. That's fine, it will. That's perfectly true. But when things start to go wrong, what are you going to do about it? Will you be able to read the map? Will you be able to fix what's under the hood of the car? And that's when we need these questions. And in particular... What will happen when you find that you're reading the Gospels and you have to screen out two-thirds of what's there? Is that being obedient to Scripture? People say, I'm just a simple Bible Christian. Okay, listen to what the Bible says. One of the favorite texts about Jesus' interpretation of the cross is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A clear echo, it seems, to many scholars of Isaiah 53, the wonderful passage about the suffering servant. I agree with that. But that's only the punchline of a longer story, and the longer story runs like this. James and John want the best seats on either side of Jesus. They come and tell him so. And the twelve get cross with them. And Jesus says, listen to it, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. Their great ones are tyrants among them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you're a good Bible Christian, you've got to deal with the four political verses before you get the one theological one. About the redefinition of power. Because the cross is all about the redefinition of power. God's power made known in weakness. That's, of course, I was talking to the pastor's conference a couple of days ago about Philippians and in Philippians 2 we have exactly this a story about Jesus being obedient unto death even the death of the cross and then God exalting him and that story is told in such a way as to echo and subvert the normal imperial stories of the day from Alexander the Great to the Caesars and so on about how people came to be grand uh, self-aggrandized pompous proud emperors Jesus came to be lord of the world by humble obedient suffering so how are we going to integrate the whole picture with the real historical Jesus in the middle of it See, my underlying argument, which you won't see the foundations of it in this lecture because there isn't time to do that, but they're all in the, in the books, is a historical hypothesis about Jesus himself which explains how the developing sequence of Christian thought got there, but which, when you understand it, will only work that way. You can't run it the other way. You can't say that because of Pauline theology and the letter to the Hebrews and the developed theology of the Gospels, therefore somebody has invented this thing about Jesus. It doesn't work like that. You have to take that on trust in this lecture and look up the footnotes for yourself. 
We have to go back to the context of Israel's vocation, of the story, the great narrative that the people of God were living within. From the Old Testament through into what we call Second Temple Judaism and on into the time of the rabbis. What was their hope? What were they looking for? How were they reading their texts and making sense of them? This is a highly complex story and I'm going to reduce it to two points. Two strands of expectation about how God was going to make a way forward for Israel out of the present period of suffering at the hands of pagans. On the one hand, first point. There are many, many texts in the Old Testament which speak of a coming king or ruler who will defeat the pagans, who will smash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, who will bruise them with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2, which is very popular in this period and developed in various writings. A king who will also rebuild the temple. That's one of the major strands of royal expectation going back to David and Solomon. The king who will come will rebuild or cleanse the temple. That's why Judas Maccabeus, 200 years before Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, he established a royal dynasty. That's why King Herod was rebuilding the temple in order to legitimate himself and his family as the true royal family, and so on and so on. But the point of all this is there will come a strong, powerful king who will win a victory, a great victory over the evil pagans, and will set up once and for all the place where the living God will be present among his people. The temple as the place and the means by which the one true God will dwell in the midst of his people. That's one vision of the royal task constituting Essential elements of the messianic expectation. The king who would come, who would rule the world, defeating evil and rebuilding the temple. The second strand, which we find again frequently in Second Temple Jewish literature, is of the suffering people who are suffering at the hands of the pagans and whose suffering and even whose death in martyrdom will somehow be effective for Israel to turn the corner and be freed. We see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel talks about the suffering people of God and of how God will liberate them and will liberate Israel as a whole through the suffering of the few. And we see it in several other books dependent on Daniel afterwards. Interestingly, both of those strands in Second Temple Judaism appeal to and make use of the fourth servant song of second Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. In some of the early rabbis, we find what to us seems a very puzzling use of Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant is suffering but brings God's justice and righteousness eventually, because they reread it in terms of a servant who is the Messiah, but the servant doesn't suffer in their reading. The servant is the one who inflicts suffering on the enemies of God's people. They have pulled the strands apart, I would say there. But also in the same period, we find in the book of Daniel and also in the Maccabean literature, The idea of the martyrs who are dying at the hands of the pagans being the fulfillment of the sacrificial offering of Isaiah 53's servant. 
And those are two quite separate strands. We have a messianic reading of Isaiah 53. We have a suffering reading of Isaiah 53. There's nobody around in the first century before Jesus who seems to think that those two would have anything to do with each other. My historical proposal is that Jesus himself, out of his own prayerful, scary study of Scripture, made a fresh creative construal of Israel's vocation, of the Messiah's vocation, joining together those two strands, believing that this was his own vocation. When he was baptized, the voice that spoke to him at his baptism combined Psalm 2, the royal picture, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, with Isaiah 42, this is my servant, the one in whom I delight, the royal servant. Could it be? Maybe that's why, immediately before the passage I just read, when Jesus was warning James and John that they might have to share his suffering, he says, I have a baptism, and can you share that baptism? And they said, oh yeah, sure. They didn't know what they were talking about, of course. Jesus talks about the bridegroom being taken away. He does and says things which hint in the middle of his kingdom announcement that the thing he's going to do, which will be doing the kingdom par excellence, is that he will go and give his life. He draws Israel's destiny onto himself. In his journey to Jerusalem, in the, in the triumphal entry, in what he does in the temple, he is doing things which say Messiah. He doesn't say Messiah too much himself. In fact, when the disciples finally say, you are the Messiah, that's one of the points when he says, you've got to be quiet about this. Well, of course they have, because there is already a king of the Jews just up the road. And if he discovers there's another one on his turf, he's not going to be best pleased. But already Jesus is showing up, as we see in that passage from Mark 10, the alternative way of doing kingship. Think of the other James and John passage in Luke 9 when they're setting off after the transfiguration to go up to Jerusalem. And they come to a village, and the village doesn't receive them. And James and John say, Lord, we want to call down fire from heaven on these people. They want to do the Elijah thing. That's what Elijah did when people didn't do what he wanted. He called down fire from heaven. There's all sorts of scary echoes, because this is Jews going from Galilee to Jerusalem through what is now called the West Bank, through Samaria. And the thought of people calling down fire from heaven on the West Bank has all sorts of resonances for us. James and John wanted that kind of kingship. A kingship of personal glory sitting at Jesus' right and left. A kingship which would blast all enemies out of the way. And Jesus is constantly living within a different way of reading the story of God, Israel, and the world. And throughout his public career... The hints and symbols of his vocation pull together with a sense that the real enemy is not Rome or Herod or the Sadducees. The real enemy is darker and stranger than that, and it is evil itself. The evil which resides locally in certain poor benighted souls who shriek at him and who have to be exorcised. The evil, perhaps more significantly, which appears to have taken up residence in what we would call the system. The system which seems, we might even say, hell-bent on going for revolution, going for the military thing, even though it appears disastrous. And Jesus is warning 
that that's not the way. This is why for Jesus, as we saw last night in the Sermon on the Mount, the path, the path of true Israel is to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to find your life by losing it. He was constantly saying that kind of thing. This was his fresh construal of what it meant to be Israel, to be the people of God. So when Jesus himself came to Jerusalem, he did two things that put up signposts full of meaning, pointing ahead to what was about to happen. The signposts are not the reality. The reality is what happened on the cross. But the signposts are Jesus' chosen ways of pointing towards and giving meaning to that extraordinary event. The first of the signposts is what he did in the temple. It wasn't a clean-up job. It wasn't saying the sacrificial system's not working terribly well and we need to do it a bit better. We need to have different sort of animals or better kind of coins or whatever it was. It was a symbolic, it was a symbolic destruction of the temple. Because if, even for a few minutes, you prevent the steady flow of the daily sacrifices, you are taking away the temple's whole raison d'etre. The temple was there to be the place of fellowship and atonement between God and Israel. And that was secured day by day, month by month, year by year by the regular sacrifices. So important is that regular flow of sacrifices that even when the Romans are besieging Jerusalem in the, the latter years of the war, 68, 69 and 70, they go on bringing the sacrifices. Even when people are starving and dying from starvation in the streets of Jerusalem, they go on offering sheep in the temple. And Josephus records with horror the moment when at the height of the siege, when the Romans were attacking the temple, the daily sacrifices stopped. Because he knows that once the sacrifices have stopped, the temple has lost its meaning and purpose. Fellowship between God and Israel is finished in that symbolic way. And Jesus, for a moment, symbolically stopped the flow of sacrifices as a way of saying, this show is under God's judgment. It's all going to be coming down. And if you look at it in Mark 11, you see that the next two chapters, Mark 11 and Mark 12, are full of little discussions about, on the one hand, what precisely did you mean by doing that? And on the other hand, who precisely do you think you are then? And then it all comes together in Mark 13, which is all about the Jesus' warnings of the destruction of the temple. And then that leads us straight into the trial narrative, which is all about what did you mean by saying, we will I'm going to destroy this temple in three days and build another one. The temple, the temple and its destruction. That is the center, the first focal point of what Jesus is saying about what he's all about. And the second one is, of course, the meal that Jesus celebrated with his followers, the Last Supper. This was Jesus' chosen way of explaining to his followers then and ever since what his death was all about. I've written this up more fully in a tiny little book at a very children's type level called the meal that Jesus gave us which you may see but just briefly this was not a theory but an action Jesus did not bequeath to his followers primarily an intellectual construct called atonement theology he gave them a meal which was a Passover meal with a radical difference a Passover meal with Jesus in the middle of it the Passover meal with a royal meaning a Passover meal in which the king shares his life with his friends and in particular makes his friends the beneficiaries of his coming kingdom-bringing death. 
the meal in which he says, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you, they can only have had the slightest notion of what on earth he was talking about. But at this point, so many symbolic and practical lines of Jesus' teaching and life come rushing together, and Jesus chose this powerful way of saying much more deeply perhaps than words ever could to this day, this is what it's all about. Look at this signpost and allow it to point you to the reality. Don't mistake the signpost for the reality. Allow the signpost to point you to the reality. So once Jesus has done these two extraordinary things, his fate is sealed pretty much, and he must have known that because he had uh, done things which were bound to call down the wrath of the authorities. After all, the temple was the center of their power base. And some people, including a uh, very learned man, Bruce Chilton, have argued that it was something to do with the supper as well that got him into trouble because uh, maybe, Ju maybe this is part of what Judas betrayed and went and told the authorities. And people have speculated about that, that Jesus was actually doing something in that Passover meal which was, as it were, replacing the temple. Those two events interpret each other. The temple as a, a building where God is going to be known is no longer going to be relevant and instead God is going to be revealed in a new way but how? And the political events unfold heavy with theological meaning but in the middle Jesus is talking and telling riddles and saying things which if you take them out of their context you can't make any sense of them at all. Strange little phrases. Phrases which you couldn't possibly explain on the basis that you got Pauline theology or the letter to the Hebrews or whatever and somebody had made up these sayings on that basis. But phrases, sentences which make a great deal of sense as spoken by Jesus cryptically and darkly. As he is on the way to the cross in Luke 23 and the women are wailing in the streets of Jerusalem. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because if they do this when the wood is green, what will they do when the wood is dry? And many commentators have said that's a very opaque statement. How can we possibly understand it? Well, you need to know the difference between a green tree and a dry one for a start. If you try and burn a green tree, it may, a tree that's just been cut down and is still full of sap, it may sputter and spit a bit, but it probably won't catch fire in the same way that one that's been thoroughly dried will. What is Jesus saying? The Romans are executing him as though he were a rebel against Rome, which, as Luke's readers know, Jesus has constantly set his face against being. James and John would love him to have gone that route, but he hasn't. And yet they're doing this to him. What are they going to do when Jerusalem is filled with dry, ready-to-burn, young firebrands? Yes, the sons of these women who are wailing in the streets. Jesus is dying the death which he himself had predicted for rebel Jerusalem. Or what about that other extraordinary image, the end of Luke 13, the end of Matthew 23, about the hen and the chickens. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not. Therefore your house is left to you desolate. Well, we've talked about the desolate house. What about the hen and the chickens? It's an image from a farmyard fire. 
I, I'm not a farm person myself, but I have heard tell of this, and it's a sort of bit of folk wisdom, that sometimes when there is a raging fire in a farmyard and all the animals are scattering for cover if they can, the hen will gather her chickens under her wings, and when the fire has finally done its worst, you may find a dead, scorched hen with live chickens under her wings. An extraordinarily powerful, violent, essentially female image of motherly protection, taking the force on itself, on herself, so that the chicks may be saved. That's what Jesus was longing to do. Jesus is associating his own coming death with the death that he's frightened lots of other people are going to have to suffer. And he has longed to shelter them and protect them. And then all those strange images I've already talked about, about being baptized, about drinking the cup. What is the cup? In the Old Testament, the cup which has to be drunk is the cup of the wrath of God. The cup which Israel drinks at the darkest point of exile, according to Jeremiah. Jesus is now going to the darkest point of exile, the point which is exiled outside the city walls, the point which is the exile of death itself. In the Old Testament, exile and death are actually very close. Think about it. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 are told, on the day that you eat of it, you'll die. And when they eat of it, they don't die that day, but they are exiled. Because exile is a sort of death. And any Jew in the Second Temple period reading that will be bound to associate it with Israel having sinned against God and being exiled from their land, interpreted as a sort of death. So that to come back from exile, according to Ezekiel, is a sort of resurrection. Jesus is going into death, which is the darkest point of exile, which is where people have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. How do we put all this together? Jesus, as we saw yesterday, had announced God's judgment on the nation that had refused to be the light of the world had refused to show to the world that Israel's God was a generous God, a welcoming God, a loving, healing, forgiving God, and instead wanted to show to the world that Israel's God was a powerful God who could call down fire from heaven and smash everyone else up. Israel was bent on defeating evil by using evil's own weapons. And Jesus announced God's judgment on that. Those who take the sword will perish with the sword. It's one of those old rules. But second, Jesus had embraced the vision to be Israel's representative, to be true to his reading of Isaiah 53, to be the Messiah who would be God's light to the world precisely by suffering and dying, the Messiah who would bring God's justice to the nations, not by smashing everyone with a rod of iron, but by giving his own life as a ransom for many. Put those two together and what you get. Jesus has announced this judgment. And the judgment is not simply that they're going to fry in hell after they die. The judgment is much more immediate. The judgment is that Rome will come and do to them what Rome always does to rebels. So when Jesus embraces the vocation to be the Messiah, Israel's representative, the one who will stand in for Israel, the one who will be the hen to the chickens, who will be the the shepherd for the sheep, 
Jesus discovers that he has to go ahead of the nation and take upon himself the very fate that he had predicted for the nation outside the city walls, just round the corner from Gehenna. Jesus took the huge risk of remaining true to this vocation, to go to the place where the world's pain and anger seemed to be concentrated and focused, to go to the place where evil with a capital E seemed to be gathering itself up, heaping itself up into a great storm cloud, and to let that storm burst upon himself. We in the Western world have real difficulty about thinking about a God who would do something at one place and time specifically rather than anywhere else. And yet that's there through and through and through in the New Testament and indeed in biblical theology as a whole. The first time I went to Jerusalem in spring 1989... I remember suddenly being confronted with this. It was at the height of the first intifada. And I walked, it was Holy Week, and I walked around Meir Sha'arim, the Orthodox Jewish quarter, and I felt the pain which is still there, the pain with all the memories of the Holocaust and all the memories of Hitler and all the longing for a Messiah who will come and help them at last. And I walked around the streets of East Jerusalem and the shops that were all boarded up because they were all on strike and people with fear in their faces. And I watched one evening, one afternoon, a funeral procession of young Uh, Palestinians being broken up by riot police with tear gas. I watched it from my bedroom window. And I felt the sense of pain and evil and hatred and fear being concentrated on one place. And when I went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for the first time on Good Friday morning, 1989, I thought, you know, it all makes sense. We may not like it in our Western philosophy, but when you stand there in Jerusalem, it makes a whole lot of sense to think that it could be all concentrated on one place and one moment and one man. And Jesus, I think, believed that that was how it had to be. That was why, if he was taking evil upon himself, even as he went to the cross, he did the unthinkable and prayed for his persecutors. There was a great Jewish tradition of martyrdom. But in the tradition of martyrdom, the martyrs went to their death, calling down curses on their persecutors and warning them that God would judge them. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's why Jesus insists in the garden that the disciples must not share his fate. Watch and pray so that you may not enter the time of testing, the pirasmos. That's a great Jewish uh, notion about the time which is coming, which will be a time of great tribulation and distress. And Jesus doesn't want them to share it because it's his vocation to go there solo and take it upon himself. Goodness knows Peter can't have been too far away from being dragged off as well, but Jesus does it all by himself. And this is why, above all, he regarded this vocation as the summit of his journey, which was not just to talk about God's kingdom, not just to do things which were signs of the kingdom, but to embody the kingly God himself. I've written about this at some length in a couple of my books, but just to say a word, that for Jesus, the question of divinity posed itself quite differently to how we would put it. People have often asked me, did Jesus know he was God? One of you in your questions, which I haven't got to yet, said uh, something about, 
Jesus' vocation and how he put this together. In the first century, God was a bit of a question mark, as God is for us, but in quite a different way. Because Israel believed in her God. She believed that God really should be living in the temple and being in fellowship with Israel. But at the same time, there was a sense that God would one day come back properly, take up residence. And when he did that, of course, then everything would be fine and justice would flow to the nations. And no longer would the pagans be oppressing them and so on. But you have to ask the question from a first century point of view, what would it look like if God did come back? Would it look like fire and brimstone raining from heaven on the enemies of God's people? Would there be a great blaze of glory sweeping all the enemies into the sea? Would it be like at the time of the Exodus, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, coming to live in the temple so that the temple would be filled with smoky cloud as it was in the days of Solomon, as it was in the vision of Isaiah, and so that everyone would tremble because they would know that God was living there at last? Would it be like a heavenly vision of legions of angels? Jesus said, I could call on legions of angels, but I'm not going to. Would it be that sort of thing? Jesus took the risk vocation is always a risk and I am convinced it was for Jesus. Jesus took the risk of acting and speaking as if he were the living embodiment of Israel's God. Returning to his people at last, taking upon himself the weight of their sin, the world's sin of evil with a capital E. So that if we understand things, if we dare try and see it from Jesus' point of view, the cross has become the new temple, the place where Israel and the world now gather in awe and gratitude to meet their God who gives himself to them. The cross has become the place of pilgrimage where the nations will come from far to stand and gaze at what has been done for each of us. The cross has become the sign that pagan empire, symbolized in the might and power of sheer brutal force, has been decisively challenged by a different power, the power of love. There is no one theory that I've ever heard that can do justice to this. You need the meal you need the sign of baptism. You need the faith. You need the silent awe in the presence of the God you see in Jesus. You need to take time to absorb it. But as you do so, remember it's a three-fold thing that you're absorbing. Don't allow the message of the cross, the historical message of Jesus and his cross, to be belittled into either merely a personal thing or merely a theological theory or merely a political ideal. It's all three and in putting them together the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The huge challenge comes to us and it is so huge that of course in the church and in scholarship people seek ways of avoiding this challenge. And I'll do it in that order. First the personal challenge. Dare you stand in front of the cross and admit that it was done for you? Because if you do, nothing will be the same again. The theological challenge. Dare you take 
all the meanings of the word God that you've ever thought of and allow them to be centered in a new way on this man, this moment, and this death. Let me say this too again and then get to the third. The personal challenge, dare you stand in front of the cross and admit that it was done for you? The theological challenge, dare you take all the meanings of the word God that you've ever imagined and allow them to be re-centered on this man and this moment and this death? And then the wider, global, political, societal challenge, which is there throughout the gospel narratives, and I believe in Jesus himself. Dare you, singular and plural, address the consequences of what Jesus said, that the rulers of the earth behave in one way, but you must not do it like that. Will you go the way of James and John, the way of calling down fire from heaven, using your allegiance to Jesus as an excuse for self-aggrandizement? Or will you listen to the words of Jesus himself? It shall not be so among you, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the challenge of the cross. I hope I just about dare to glimpse it. And I pray that you will too. Let's just take a moment and be still. I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Give us grace, dear Lord, to say and to live. Amen to that. Let's go.